turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, you'd go a little bit more than halfway in to the Bible and turn to the right and you'll find a few names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, the third of the four gospel accounts, eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke, of course, is best known, perhaps, at least around this time of year, for its rich and detailed telling of the birth of Jesus Christ. So many families for many years and churches have spent Christmas morning together reading the Christmas story, so to speak, from Luke chapter 2. But that's not where we're going to be for the next four Sundays. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Advent reminds us that we are a people in waiting. We're a people who look back on what God has done and how God has fulfilled his word and kept his promises in the coming of Christ. And yet we look forward knowing that we have not yet received all the fullness of God's promises. There is a kingdom that's been inaugurated that is not yet fully realized. Christ is king and does have all authority in heaven and on earth, but he does not yet reign without an opponent. There are still those in our world system and in the spiritual realm who set themselves up against Jesus as king. And so we know that we are a people who have not yet arrived at our destination. We're not yet a people at rest. We are a people in waiting. Yes, we celebrate that Christ has come, and yet we remember that Christ is yet to come again. And so just like the people of Israel living under the old covenant prior to the first coming of Christ, we are a people in waiting. And that reality is even illustrated by the way that Dr. Luke arranges his gospel. Because while we often turn to Luke thinking of the birth of Jesus and looking for that story, before we get to the birth of Jesus, we actually get a really long chapter about John and about Mary and her cousins and some prophecies that were made a long time ago and, well, about waiting so before we get to that glorious birth story where we see the promises fulfilled and Christ enters the scene, first we have 58 some verses, that's more than that, it's 60, it's 80 verses, I forgot how many verses the chapter is, we're not doing all 80 verses today, it's 80 verses before we get to the birth of Jesus. And when we come to the start of the New Testament, the start of this era that Jesus brings onto the scene and explodes into the world, we need to consider how this part of the story relates to what came before it and what comes after it. We need to see the connectedness of the Jesus story with the history of God's people and his promises to them over centuries. 
And that connectedness entails an obvious continuity between the Old and the New, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus arrives on the scene not out of the blue, but in specific fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies concerning the salvation and well-being of God's people as the answer to their deep and lasting need at the proper time, we're told in the book of Galatians, Christ was born of woman. And so, as we're told elsewhere, in Christ, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. So when Christ comes onto the scene, it's not just a random guy doing cool tricks. It is in specific fulfillment of centuries of waiting. Centuries of promises made that had yet to be fulfilled. And so there is a continuity between what Jesus, between what came before the promises that have been made, and when Jesus enters the scene and the New Testament, as we call it, come to be unfolded. But that connectedness also entails a certain essential discontinuity. There's something fundamentally new about what Christ brings. This Jesus, this promised Messiah, will introduce something fundamentally New. He will usher in an entirely new era. His presence in the world and the work he would accomplish will inaugurate a new age that will extend out forever into eternity, even as it overlaps the present age, which is passing away. In fact, it's the overlapping of those two ages, the new age, the eternal kingdom of God that's been inaugurated, and the present age that's passing away that leads to so much of the tensions that we face and feel in this life in this fallen world why we can have within our own hearts conflicting competing desires why at one moment can i desire holiness and purity and what honors christ and the very next moment be chasing filth how is that possible because we live in the overlap of these two ages so when the gospel of luke opens up we are reminded by the very promises and stories and characters that we're introduced to in chapter 1, we are reminded that this is an old age and a new one is being introduced and there's this tension that we live in. So the gospel story begins before the Messiah actually appears on the stage. The curtain opens on a people in waiting. And before we meet this Messiah, we will meet his forerunner, his herald, the prophet appointed by God to announce to his people that the promises would finally be fulfilled. The one who, by his prophetic ministry, would help to prepare the people to receive the ministry of the promised Savior. Actually, we back up even farther than that. We don't start with John. We, we start with John's parents. We meet first an aging Jewish couple by the names of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So look in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 5 through 7. Our plan today is to get down through verse 25, all right, just to give you a little bit of context. We're not taking all this chapter. Over the next four Sundays of Advent, we will walk through this entire chapter 
which will lead us to the threshold of the birth story in Luke chapter 2, and that's what we'll get to enjoy together on Christmas morning when we gather to worship. Look at Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Sometimes God waits to step in until things are a real mess. We first find out that things are a mess because these are the days of Herod, the king of Judea. And Herod was a bad dude. Herod was paranoid and violent. He had his own wife and sons killed because he was afraid that they were angling for his throne. That's the kind of fella that is reigning over the, the area of Judea. And thus the people of God, the people of Israel, are under this Roman rule. And Herod, the king, is the ruler at the time. And he's not a happy guy to live under. So things don't look too good for the people of God under the rule of a guy like this. But even more significantly, the days of Herod are four centuries after the last prophet in Israel died, Malachi. The Old Testament closes with the prophetic book of Malachi, and he was the last prophet to speak on behalf of God to the people of Israel. And when he died, the word of God stopped coming. And so there are some 400 years of silence from God. And the people are in waiting. And the people are indeed under oppression and the rule of foreign leaders foreign powers, and they have been without a word from God for some four centuries. This is the situation that Luke's gospel opens upon. But, praise God, for a faithful remnant of his people, we see them here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there are others that we'll see. They aren't necessarily given names in the story, but there are others around them and in their community who seem to be following the Lord, who seem to be continuing to carry out their sacrifices and their offerings and their prayers, and they're looking for God's fulfillment of these promises. And we meet specifically Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, this Zechariah is not to be confused with the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, different fellow. And he is a priest. In fact, both of them have priestly pedigree. So Zechariah is a priest in the order of Abijah, and which means that two weeks out of every year he would serve in the temple, right? So they, there was a rotating, uh, they were rotating duty among these priests, and there were some 18,000 priests. So none of them got to do a whole bunch for a whole long time, but two weeks a year, uh, and sometimes a little bit extra around the, the major feasts and festivals like Passover, they would be in the temple providing uh, their service uh, to the Lord and to the people. So Zechariah is one of these priests. 
And he's married to a woman named Elizabeth, who is of the daughters of Aaron. Aaron, the brother of Moses, from whom Levi would come. And so all of the priests of Israel would come from that line. And so Elizabeth has priestly pedigree, and Zechariah is actively serving as a priest of God in the temple. And we're told that they were both, verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean they're perfect. That doesn't mean they're without sin because nobody save the Lord Jesus Christ has been without sin. But they are righteous people. That is, they have been declared right with God and because of that right standing with him, they're living out the character and the calling and the commands of God in his word. So they are righteous people and they are blamelessly following the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And in this day, in this dark time, under this dark ruler, that is not to be missed. There is a faithful remnant of the people of God still faithfully listening, leaning in, waiting on the Lord to answer his promises. They're keeping their heads down, doing their jobs, so to speak. But they're also disadvantaged. They're also grieved because we're told in verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now this shouldn't sound unfamiliar to anybody who's read the Bible or spent much time with Bible stories. There have been a few prominent women throughout the history of the scriptures who found themselves in similar situations where biologically or socially they were not in a position, they were not able to have children, and yet God steps in. We think, of course, of Abraham and Sarah and the promise that God made to Sarah that she would conceive and have a son when they were very old and had not had any children. And, of course, Isaac, that promised son, would be the one through whom the, the family line would continue all the way down to the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And on and on we could go. You, could, you think of, of course, uh, Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca had the same kind of story. We think of um, uh, the wife of Manoah who gave birth to Samson in the book of Judges. We think of uh, Elkanah and Hannah in 1 Samuel. Hannah prayed and God opened her womb and she gave birth to Samuel. So th this is a way that God often in the Bible has stepped in where there is an end of human resourcefulness or utility where there is no possibility for the, of the people to sort of do things themselves, God steps in. So it's clear that he will receive the glory. So we shouldn't be too surprised to meet somebody in this situation. And yet we do. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years and had no child. So we've met these two main characters. Let's continue. I'm going to read for you verses 8 through 17 and see what happens next. What happens to these two saints of God? Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Funny thing happened at church today. Went into the temple just doing my ordinary service and you'll never believe who showed up. These uh, appearances like this are, we, we think of them as commonplace because we've read the Bible and there's several places where this happens, but it doesn't happen all that frequently. Just historically speaking, when an angel shows up, visibly manifests himself with a message from God, that's a red letter day. That's an unusual occurrence. That makes the history books, which is why we read about several of those, because they make the books, right? People write about those. So Zechariah has a meeting in the temple with a divine being, a divine agent of God. But of course, first God has to get Zechariah into the temple. And so it has to come about that it just happens to be his allotted day to serve, when his division was on duty. And they had to cast lots to see who was going to be the one that went into the temple to burn the incense. That's a particularly special part of the ritual and the routine. And given the, the, the number of priests, I mentioned about 18,000 priests, and the fact that they only serve two weeks a year, a man would probably only burn incense in the holy place of the temple once in his life. This is a pretty big deal. It's a special day for Zechariah, for sure. And in order for him to be in that position, the lot has to fall to him. Well, who do you think might be sovereign over the casting of the lot? The lot is cast into the lot, but it's every decision is from the Lord, says the book of Proverbs. And so Zechariah now finds himself in the temple, burning incense, in the holy place, but he's not alone. There suddenly appeared to him an angel of the Lord. And can we just pause and note the grace of a word from God? 400 years there's been silence. 400 years there's been no prophet in Israel. 400 years the word of God has been closed up and not flowing forward to his people. And now... On this day, in the temple, to a priest named Zechariah, God sends a messenger. God delivers his word. And he has good news for him, even though Zechariah is afraid. This is usually the first thing the angels say when they show up in the Bible. Don't be afraid, because 
When that happens, you're probably wigged out a little bit. Or sometimes I say, stand up, you know, because somebody just collapsed. Don't be afraid. Why should he not be afraid? Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. What sweet assurance. Your prayer has been heard. I wasn't sure about that. I've been laboring in obscurity my whole life, faithfully serving at the temple, faithfully reading the Bible and trying to keep his commands and praying and praying, praying for my wife who hasn't been able to have a child and praying for my own family and and lineage and posterity and praying for the people of Israel who languish under this horrible Roman ruler and with no sign of your kingdom and your promise to come. I've been praying and praying and praying and God says, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Probably both personal prayers, clearly God sees and knows the heart of Zechariah and of Elizabeth and the grief that they carry, the ways that they're disadvantaged. Indeed, Elizabeth later in the passage will use the word reproach. He knows the reproach that they've carried because of the lack of an heir, the lack of a child. He knows they've been praying for this. And corporately, just in the, the course of Zechariah's duty as a priest, and representing the people of God, I'm sure that he and Elizabeth both have been praying on behalf of the people. They've been praying for the beleaguered, waiting people of God, for this promised deliverer. Lord, send your Savior. Send your Messiah. Deliver your people. And in all of those ways, a simple word from the angel of God, your prayer has been heard. Brothers and sisters, the same assurance is for us today. Your prayers are heard. Most of us probably won't receive confirmation in the form of a visit from a heavenly being, but we have the more sure word of the scriptures, says Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have the witness of the martyrs beneath the altar in Revelation chapter 6 that the, t- the testimony of their prayers are rising to the presence of the Lord and the testimony of the saints in every age, even people sitting next to you right now, including our own. God hears our prayers. He is not deaf to our need. His ear is not closed off from our cries. Your prayer has been heard. Praise God. What's going to happen? He says, your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Dale Ralph Davis says, God tends to begin his finest works in the face of human hopelessness and human weakness. When there is nothing to be done, that's when God begins. That's when God shows up. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And we get this kind of list of of responses and things. He says in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. Certainly the joy of a father over his child. But more broadly than that, you will 
collectively all the people will have joy and gladness over God's salvation. God's beginning to work. The promises are beginning to be fulfilled. And he says many will rejoice at his birth. And probably not just a moment of his birth, but his very life, which would serve as this special excuse me, preparatory ministry to prepare the people to receive the ministry of the Messiah who would come. He says he will be great before the Lord. Probably not speaking here of his being. This is probably not an ontological greatness like, wow, never seen a guy like this before, but more in the specialness of his role, the function that he has to announce the coming of the Messiah. And then he gives them an instruction. He says in verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now the the prohibition on drinking wine and strong drink is not a universal prohibition of all people. Nobody can ever drink wine or strong drink. The Bible doesn't ever say that. This actually calls to mind the Nazarite vow that you can read about in Numbers chapter 6, which was a voluntary uh, period of time where a person would enter a special service to God and they would take this Nazarite vow, which they would say during that period of time when they were serving in this particular capacity, they could not drink wine or any alcoholic beverage, they could not cut their hair, that's why the weirdness of Samson and how come he's strong when he has his long hair and then Delilah cuts his hair and suddenly he's weak. Like, that's really strange. Well, it doesn't really have anything to do with, like, magic powers in his hair. It has to do with the fact that Samson had taken a Nazarite vow and he broke it. And so God removed his strength from him. That was the whole deal with Samson. So this calls to mind the Nazarite vow. Now, we only have the mention of the prohibition against wine and strong drink. So it may or may not be the full Nazarite vow that's in view here. But the point is, John will be set aside for a special kingdom service. And he will be consecrated to the Lord. And so the, even the potential of the corrupting influence of wine and alcohol would be away from him because of the special role that he would play. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And you might think, well, that's probably just like hyperbole. Maybe he's just exaggerating. But we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks down in verse 41 that he actually, while he's an infant in his mother's womb, leaps with joy when he's in the presence of Jesus, who's in his mother's womb. It's a really interesting scene. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But that actually gives an indication that perhaps this is not just hyperbole. Perhaps the Holy Spirit actually really is with John, even as an infant in the womb. And maybe, just maybe, as a secondary or third-level application or implication of this, we should be really careful about how we view what's going on inside the womb of a pregnant woman. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now those words all sound 
very noble and flowery, but there's a reason for that. They're actually quotations. They're quotations from the prophet Malachi. Mentioned him earlier, the last prophet in Israel, the one who after he died, there were 400 years of silence from God. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God promises his people through this final prophet under the old covenant, behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children and the children toward their fathers and on you go. So the one who would come, in Malachi it's actually the language of I will send you Elijah. You might think, oh wow, I guess literally Elijah is going to be sent back from heaven and enter the world again. But what we're told here by this angel who's speaking to Zechariah is that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus actually confirms in Matthew eleven fourteen that it is John who was spoken of in that very prophecy. So we don't expect a literal Elijah to show up on the earth again. But when John the Baptist comes into the world at, by this promise that we're reading about right now, he is the one who fulfills that prophecy in Malachi. He is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what's the ministry he does? He is turning the hearts of children toward their fathers, the hearts of fathers toward their children. And we actually get an additional one in verse 17. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will turn the hearts of fathers to children. He will turn the hearts of disobedient to wisdom. What's the purpose of all of this? The final phrase of verse 17 tells us, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's the title of the series of messages, a people prepared. That's what Advent's all about. Advent is about the preparation of God's people to receive his promises. The readiness of his people to receive what God has promised to do and the grace he pours out. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Going back to Malachi again, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, I will send my messenger, that's actually John, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So John's ministry is one of preparation. It's one of announcing to the people, watch and see what the Lord is about to do. That's what John's ministry is all about. And you see that fulfilled, of course, when Jesus later comes to John to be baptized. And when Jesus enters the scene there, John sees him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It should be me coming to you to be baptized, not you coming to me, right? So John recognizes this is not about me, it's about him. My whole ministry and the going about in the wilderness and eating camel or whatever, locusts and honey and wearing camel's hair and all of this stuff and these baptisms of John, all of this is just to point people to him. That's his ministry. Watch and see what the Lord is about to do. Aslan is on the move. That's what John's message essentially is here. And Zechariah is told this is going to be the life and ministry and purpose 
of your son, John. He is the one that was foretold in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. And he will announce the coming of the Messiah. And in a way, this is how Advent should affect us. This season of celebration of Christ's first coming and the reminder that we're waiting yet again for his near return should tune our hearts to be looking eagerly for the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ. Not in the sense of like headline eschatology where you're scouring newspapers and you know prophecy websites and trying to figure out what current events match up with some particular biblical prophecy. That's not what I'm talking about. Or of an anxious wondering about the specific timing of Christ's coming. We're actually told that those things are fool's errands. Jesus says that nobody knows. Even the Son does not know. Only the Father in heaven knows the hour of his coming. But in the sense of a bride longing for her groom. God's people should be sincerely yearning for what the Bible calls our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Advent season should have us not just looking backward at a manger, but it should have us looking forward to the skies where Christ will come again because he's promised he will come. The story of Christmas alerts us. Look what God has done already. Look at how his promises have been kept. Surely he will keep the ones that yet remain to be answered in their fullness. He will keep his promises. Well, how does Zechariah respond to this message from the angel? Look in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, so now we're back outside the temple. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Zechariah's response to this message of the angel is not exactly what you'd want to put on a poster of what faith looks like. He probably would like to have this one back, as they say. How shall I know this? Maybe one clue is that a bright heavenly being appeared in the temple and told you, right? How shall I know this? So he's not just saying, that's interesting. How could this be? Let's unpack this a little bit more. He is asking for a sign. I need to have some way that I can actually know this is real, that this is actually going to happen. Because I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to go out there and get my wife's hopes up. 
hey, guess what? You're going to have a son. I just heard. And then that actually never comes true. And then we went through this roller coaster for nothing. Zechariah is already doing the damage control in his mind. Instead of receiving by simple faith the message that God had given him. Now, easy to click our tongues and wag our fingers at Zechariah. Man, you poor fool, you silly man. How could you doubt the word of the Lord delivered to you by this angel? But don't we doubt the word of God just the same? Don't we shrink back from his callings, unsure he'll provide in the ways he's assured us he would provide? Don't we question his wisdom or his goodness or even his existence simply because the thoughts and fears in our own minds can sometimes overpower the voice of his spirit bearing witness with ours? Not sure I would have done too much better than Zechariah if that had been me. So the angel responds with a rebuke, to be sure. Because you did not believe, you will be silent and unable to speak. But the rebuke in God's strange and wonderful mercy is actually the sign that he asked for. How will I know this will be the case? Well, how about this? For the next nine months, you can't talk. And in fact, maybe he can't hear. Because the phrase that he would be silent actually might mean deafness. You can't speak, you can't hear. And that might be confirmed by verse 62 later where neighbors are communicating with Zechariah with signs. That's possible. But at the very least, he is unable to speak. No words will come from his mouth. And I think by that point, by that time, where he starts to come back with a, with a retort, with a rebuttal, and nothing comes out, maybe now he knows. Oh, this is how I will know. Okay. You will be silent and unable to speak. So there's a rebuke, and yet the rebuke of the Lord is the reassurance of the Lord at the same time. And he goes out. The people have been wondering, what's taking him so long? You know, we're waiting, and he hasn't come out. And when he comes out, they can recognize pretty quickly something happened in there. They recognize that he saw a vision. But of course, you can't tell them about it because he can't speak. Verse 24 and 25. After these days, as after these days of his service in the temple, when they've returned to his home, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Just like God promised. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. We don't know why. We don't have a window into her mind there. Perhaps it's for embarrassment. Perhaps it's to try to quiet the questions of the neighbors. Perhaps it's for Zechariah's sake because he can't talk about it. We don't know. But for for the first five months of her pregnancy, she keeps herself hidden. And during that five months, what's she doing? She's worshiping God. Look at verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. When you hide yourself, are you worshiping God? In our moments of solitude and isolation where we feel like we just, I just don't have the strength or the energy to get out of the house or to go to the thing or to have the other conversation, what do we do in those moments? How do we spend that time? 
I think Elizabeth gives us a pretty good model here. She's worshiping the Lord. She's giving him thanks. She's recognizing the Lord has looked upon me. The Lord has taken notice of me. The Lord has given me mercy and grace. He has taken away my reproach. Again, that embarrassment, that sense of shame that comes along with infertility, with barrenness, especially in that time and culture. But once again, the word of the Lord proved true, right? The angel told Zechariah Elizabeth would conceive, and now, after all these years, after all this yearning, Elizabeth has conceived. And Elizabeth rightly turns this providence into fuel for worship. And so would the Lord remind you today, God keeps his promises. God is true to his word. The redemption he has promised, he will fulfill. The salvation he's begun, he will complete. Jesus promised us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He promised us peace, and he accomplished everything necessary for that peace to be ours. He took our brokenness, our failure, our sin, our rebellion upon his own shoulders and carried it to a cross where he would suffer and die alone, not for his own misdeeds, but for ours. Why? so that the wrath of God against your sin and my sin could be poured out on him, so that all that's left for the sinner who draws near to God in repentant faith is love and mercy and cleansing and forgiveness and life and hope. Jesus did everything necessary for the peace that he promised to be ours. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of the one who came to remove every barrier between you and God, to clear the pathway through your sin and brokenness and to his forgiveness and holiness. As the old hymn says, let every heart prepare him room. And that's the call to each of us. That's the invitation that the Lord extends in the season of Advent. As he came to us, he invites us now, come to me in faith, in repentance. Prepare room for me in your heart. Receive me and welcome me by faith. And all the promises of God for the ages will be fulfilled in your own life through Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this season and for this word. We thank you for the invitation that you've extended to us to draw near to you through faith in Christ because he's accomplished everything necessary for the peace that he promised to be ours. And on this day when we've lit the candle of peace and we've prayed for peace in our world and in our midst, God, we thank you for peace with you purchased for us by the shed blood and broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ.
there's anyone in this room or in the sound of my voice who has not recognized his or her own sin and need for your forgiveness and grace and trusted upon Christ, we pray in this moment that you would draw their hearts to yourself, that they would take up that invitation and welcome Jesus into their hearts and receive the new and lasting life that only he gives. And fathers, we come to your table and we take together the supper that Jesus left for his people. We pray that in our hearts we would feast by faith upon all that Christ has provided in his life and death and resurrection. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.